Thank you, Devin. Well, this morning we continue our series in the book of Revelation, so if you have your Bible, uh, turn to the last book of uh, the Bible and uh, turn to the 20th chapter, and in a few moments uh, we'll pray and look into this uh, passage. Uh, I don't know if you're aware, but this is uh, in many ways a sanctity of human life Sunday in which it's kind of anniversary of the Roe v. Wade of uh, 1973 in which abortion was basically approved by our Supreme Court to be on demand uh, at any at any time, um, even though they had said not the last trimester, but it continues to do that all the time. I don't know if you're aware of, of just the insidiousness of that whole um, movement, uh, because uh, Roe v. Wade, Jane Roe, was the, the one who was the plaintiff for um, the desire for the Supreme Court to rule. That wasn't her name. Her name is Norma um, McCorvey. And uh, she was 21. Uh, she uh, was married. She was uh, in a struggling relationship. She had one child, and was she was pro-choice. But um, she, uh, as a, an impressionable 21-year-old, she was kind of driven into this case. And I don't know if you know this, but she never did have an abortion. And uh, she became a Christian r- real recently after that. And her whole life now is dedicated to, to reverse the whole um, verdict by the Supreme Court. And so, uh, and, and as she looks at it, she feels she was really manipulated by the whole process to be presented as one who felt life in the womb was not sacred. And so, uh, we need to be praying for our nation. Uh, it is still a blight on us as a culture that we, we value life so um, minimally that we would take that, which is the most defenseless people that are alive in, on, on earth, life in the womb, and would, on the whim of, um, of anyone carrying that life, uh, they can choose to terminate it. And, and so um, it, it is something that we need to, to pray about that. And, and she said even the lawyer knew that she wasn't at that time looking for an abortion and she still lied about it. But, but sometimes what people have, and people do lie in court and even before the most supreme court in our land, and so we need to be just uh, praying for our country in, in, in that way. Uh, and with that as a, as a kind of a serious note, uh, today is probably the most serious uh, topic in all of God's Word as we look at the judgment that is to come. And, and with that, um, let's look to the uh, Lord in prayer as we kind of set our hearts and minds about what, what God has said will come in the future. Uh, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here, and we pray in the midst of all that we say that, that we can realize um, the darkness of, and hopelessness there is for some, but, but in the midst of that, there is still good news and grace and mercy for all who are open to receive what you have to offer. Uh, help, us to, uh, help us to wrestle with this portion of God's word in a way that brings light in the midst of darkness, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I've entitled the message, A Hell of a Message. And as I was thinking about that, if there's any place you ought to talk about hell, it's, it's a place like this. And in case you, you um, I know some of you here for the very first time, um, this is not a portion of Scripture I delight in preaching on. In fact, uh, some of you know that there are times I can get emotional in the pulpit. Anybody have ever seen that happen? Well, uh, I never did that originally when I was preaching. Uh, but the very first time I did it 
was the very first time I preached on hell. It just overwhelmed me. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's interesting when you think about the use of the word hell. Uh, the use of the word hell is used, you know, in our culture. Um, and, and I want to give you a, 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 an insight how you can use it appropriately. If you use the word hell in the front part of a sentence, you can probably get away with it, at least from God's perspective. If you use it at the end of a sentence or a phrase, you're probably not using it in the way God would honor it. For instance, if you say, hell is a place no one wants to go to, that, that's used it in an appropriate setting, right? It's the front part of the sentence. But if you hit yourself with a hammer on your thumb or whatever, you say, oh, hell, you know, that's probably not the appropriate, and it's at the end of a sentence. Or, or if you've experienced, whether you actually said it verbally or that it was in your mind, probably the, the most hurtful thing that you could ever say to someone and, and really mean it would be to tell a person, go to hell. And I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands. But I would dare say many of you have actually said it out loud in a fit of anger. And if you've never said it in a fit of anger, you, you might have said it under, underneath your breath. Because you're so angry at that moment. You were so, you were so upset with that person. You just... Go to hell. The, the first time I, I said it out loud, and, and actually I think it was the last time, because even, becoming a Christian at, at, a, at a very young age, and I, I realized what hell was even early in life. I remember, I, this is going to sound silly, I, I remember I was, I was in elementary school. You know, I was in the fifth grade. And um, I don't know if you know, I, I'm somewhat of a competitive person. You know, when, when I play games, I, I want to I wanna win. And, and I remember playing, I was on the playground, I think we were playing kickball, and it was, I don't know, it might have been a tournament for the, you know, the league championship on fifth grade or whatever it might be. And, and we were playing, and, and I desperately wanted to win, and there was somebody, some people on the other team desperately wanted to win, and there's this one individual who was cheating the whole game. And he was cheating in such a way that, that, that he wasn't being caught, except he knew it and I knew it. And then he, he knew I knew it, and so then he just started mouthing off, just kind of, you know, like making fun of that I knew that he was cheating and they were winning, and I got so angry. I just told him, go to hell. And it wasn't until that night I realized what I had actually said. Because our hearts ought to break when we think about a person going to that place in which is described as a, a place of fiery torment, of complete darkness, of pain to the point where people are weeping and gnashing of teeth, the place where even the worm does not die. And see, with this kind of setting, we see where we are now in the flow of history. If you're wondering what's really happening since Christ came the first time, really the book of Revelation kind of gives us, gives us a glimpse and kind of a timeline. You know, Jesus came the first time, and this is basically what all the Gospels are about, is that in the Gospels you see Jesus is, is coming as a, as a compassionate, merciful, gracious 
savior, redeemer, trying to draw people to himself and, and have a change on the inside so that could last forever in the, in the heavens that God has prepared for those who know and love him. And, and he humbly is willing to, to die on our behalf. He humbled himself to the point of becoming a man and then was willing to be humble to the point of, of, of dying in our place. And, and then it's been 2,000 years, a little bit over 2,000 years since he came the first time. And, and Revelation uh, reveals to us, okay, the one who is to come again, who is he? And, and the completed picture is he's not simply meek and mild. He's, he's the one coming in majesty and power and righteousness and holiness. And he has those eyes that are like burning fire that penetrate. That picture is given at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book. He's coming at that point not to save but to judge. And then in chapters 2 and 3, it speaks about the program of God now, and it's the churches. And there's seven churches picked out in basically the Turkish Asia Minor area. And these seven churches are just representative churches that will be then and until now and until he comes again. And there are, just like now, there are good churches and there are not so good churches. There are churches that are doing well and, and not so well. And the churches that are doing well, he's going to reward for their faithfulness and getting the message out. And he's not going to reward the churches and the people that are not getting the message out and living lives that honor him. And then in chapter 4, we see what is to come. And then God says, okay, the clock has hit, has hit the 12 mark. And God's final program will be unleashed on the earth. Understanding God's word as I understand it, what God's going to do at that point is he, he's going to fulfill that promise that God's wrath is not destined for his people. And, and he will catch up his people. That's what the rapture is. And he, he will take them to heaven so they don't receive the direct hand of the anger of God. And in chapters 4 through 19, you read nothing of the church. Where before you read only about the church. It's gone. Because God's people have been spared for this time at this, that was like no other time in the past or in the future. And in chapters 4 through 19, you, you, you see what's happening in heaven as God is unleashing what is to be brought to this planet. And then you see what's happening on earth. And, and you see even in the midst of, of God's judgment, and you see the evil one's plan being played out. And even during this play of evil versus good, it, there is no contest because God, who is good, will, will defeat the evil one who is bad. But in the midst of so many desiring to follow after the evil one for what he promises and it seems to deliver, there will be the grace and mercy of God as, as people from every tongue and every nation, every tribe will be saved. There will be millions that will be saved. None, none will go into the period of tribulation saved, but many will, will come to faith. But the vast majority of people on planet during that time will still rebel against God and turn from Him. And then in Revelation 19, you, you see Jesus arriving in the second coming. And He defeats all those who rebel against Him. And it will be a quick judgment. And there will be those who survive, most of them will, will die who are in faith and in relationship to Christ, and they'll be taken to heaven. But there will be those who survive that period of time, and, and they will go into that 
that promised kingdom on earth, that thousand-year reign. And, and they will repopulate this planet. They will start with a few, just like Adam and Eve, and then it will be an explosion of people put on this planet. And, and most of the, well, I don't know what the percentage will be, many of them will remain faithful to Jesus Christ and come to faith, but there will be those who reject him, even in a perfect environment. And God gives, through Jesus, ruling, and, and those that are part of the, those who come with them will rule righteously, and overt evil will be judged quickly and completely. But the inner darkness that is in a person's heart that does not come to Christ during that period of time will will rebel against him inwardly. And then when Satan comes, they'll rebel against him outwardly. And there will be one more final judgment after that thousand-year reign, and, and they will be defeated. But even then, that's not the complete end. Because what we come to now is what happens after that final physical defeat? And what God announces is that is there is a first death and there is a second death. The first death can be experienced by everyone. But only those who have rebelled against Christ, not put their trust and faith in Him, they will experience the second death. The word death in Scripture simply means separation. When we die physically, we are separated from this life physically. The second death is when we're separated from God spiritually. It's the phrase that somewhat explains that, is that if you only are born once, you will die twice. If you are born twice, you only die once. And that's why Jesus was trying to be real plain with a religious leader who should have known it but didn't know it. And he said, you must be born again. And to be born again spiritually is to put your faith in Jesus Christ and he takes that which is wrong on the inside, he makes it right and you become a new creature. And as wild as that sounds, being born again, he wasn't talking about a physical rebirth, he was talking about a spiritual rebirth. And when we put our faith in Christ, we are born again. What's going to happen to those who are going to face the second death? Well, that's where we come to today. What is this place called hell? And what leads people to that experience that will last not just for a moment, but for eternity? And what I want to do this morning is just simply take the, probably the most clear passage in all of God's Word, which is found in our series, in the book of Revelation, and, and just, just visualize what's to happen. Revelation is often put in pictures you know, one picture is worth a thousand years. We could say so much today about what the Bible says throughout the Word of God about the judgment that's come. But let's, let's look at it this morning from Revelation chapter 20, beginning at verse 11. And first of all, I want you to visualize this scene. And we'll pick it apart after we read it. Then the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. This is actually the verse before. And brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's what is to come. But before that comes, there is a judgment to come. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. And no one was found for them. And I saw the dead 
the great and the small, standing before the throne. So this judgment is to come. What will it look like? Well, okay, let's just go back and see what we just read. What will you see? You'll see a great white throne. Then I saw a great white throne. And as you think about throne, the word throne is actually used 50 times in the book of Revelation. It's always perceived as a place of ruling. When it's used of God, it's that sovereign rule where he stands in authority or sits in authority. The white obviously illustrates purity. He is a pure ruler, which is unlike human history, right? You know, people who rule at whatever level of authority, are they perfect? No, even, even the best of our leaders, the ones that we appreciate the most or admire the most, whether it be in our American history or down through the ages, there is no perfect world leader. But they're one who is to come, and he is on a white throne, symbolizing that he is a pure, righteous ruler. And who is that ruler? And then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it. Now, we believe what the Bible teaches, and what the Bible teaches isn't always easy to completely understand, but it's clear about what is most important. We believe in there's how many gods? One God. But within the one God, there are three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And sometimes you say, well, when I get to heaven, who am I going to see? Am I going to see the Father? Am I going to see the Son? Am I going to see the Spirit? You ever thought about that? And I don't have the answer to all those questions, but I, but I do have an answer to the question, who am I going to see or who are people going to see at this great white throne judgment? They're going to see Jesus, the one they rejected. And the reason I believe that is like John chapter 5, verse 22 before looking at the judgments in Psalm 9, it says, But the Lord abides forever. He has established His throne for judgment. And He will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. It's going to be a righteous judgment. But who's on the throne? For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the, to the Son. They'll see this Jesus whom, whom they have rejected. But it doesn't stop there. What will happen right at that place of judgment? It says... From the presence, from whose presence, the one who sat on, on, on the throne, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. As we look into the future, all that we see is going to be changed. It's going to be dramatically recreated. Some authors, as they look at it, they say it's the uncreation of creation and then recreating back creation. Now, how God's going to do that, I don't know. But see, what we see in our world today, it's, it's, uh, it's filled with decay. It's been marred by sin. The, the things that, that insurance companies say, these are acts of God, you know, the hurricanes, the tornadoes, the blizzards that people are experiencing in the east, all those things that don't seem to fit within if God made this, why isn't it a little better than it is? It's going to be changed. And even that earth that was here during the thousand-year reign, it still has a little bit of taint of sin. But when this final judgment comes, God's going to throw away the heaven and the earth, and there's no place for it to be found because God's going to rechange everything. And, and, and who are going to be there? He says, I saw the dead, the great, and the small standing before the throne. And right before that, looking at 2 Peter 3.10, does the Bible say this is going to happen? Yes, it does. 
But the day of the Lord will become like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. So the Bible, there is going to be a global warming, but it's not going to be by some accident because of what the sun has done. The sun will cause everything on this universe and on this planet to be reconfigured. Now, have you ever stepped back and, you know, when you hear people preach or teach or even when you just read the Bible on your own, you go, wow, this is, this is, this is a lot to, you know, to really believe. I mean, this is, this, is, this, this is kind of out there. Well, can I just give you, I, I referred to this a, a number of months ago, but, you know, he, he just restated this in a number of different ways recently. But the, the smartest man in the world today is considered... Uh, to be Stephen Hawking, okay? Stephen Hawking is that, that brilliant physicist who, who um, became famous because he kind of discovered or rediscovered or understood black holes, and, you know, he, you know, I think it was Oxford, uh, where he had the most prestigious place to be a professor of, of um, physics. And, uh, you, know, you know what he's saying now? He's saying a lot like the Bible says, but just in much more cartoonish ways. He says of the earth right now, he says, I'm totally convinced this planet will self-destruct. And the only hope for humankind is that we colonize the planets around us. That we we, we got to get to Mars or some other place, some other rock that's going everywhere. And we, we got we gotta be able to figure out how to live there. And I think in maybe a couple hundred years we might be able to do that. But he says, my great fear is we might not have enough time for that. Why? Not necessarily because of global warming. That's not his fear as much, which is more natural or, you know, unless you think we have too much of a carbon, you know, footprint. But his fear is science and technology and somebody pushing the nuclear button will blow up this planet. And he's hoping somehow we, we don't destroy ourselves. I don't know, what's harder to believe? That, that there's a creator God that's unveiled himself in, in history in, in a man named Jesus, who if God did become a man, would be exactly like Jesus, who would conquer death, he would prove it by being alive from the dead for 40 days, being seen by over 500 witnesses at various times in various situations, being a, living not only a, not a carbon footprint, but a prophetic footprint, and throughout the centuries changing lives radically when they came to faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, just take this, this, this um, Nancy McCourtney. Here is a person that started the whole, uh, I could get off here, you know, abortion thing, and now she's completely changed. How do you explain that? She just got religion? She got Jesus Christ, and it changed her whole perspective. And, and, and so I, I want you to understand that there are people who don't believe this that think that this world is going to collapse. But I'm saying it's not going to happen by our hand. It's going to happen by God's hand and according to his timetable. And at the judgment, there'll be a great white throne. Jesus will be sitting on it. He will declare in a, in a pictorial way, look at all this thing that's been de- decayed. Romans says that the, even creation groans until all things are remade. They will just pass away. And everyone will come before him, both great and small. Acts 17 says this, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, this is Paul speaking to 
the, the intellectuals of his day in Greece, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, which is Jesus, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The, the message in the first century is the same as the 21st century. There's a judgment that is coming, and everyone needs to turn from their own self-centered lives to a Savior. Not to a Savior, to the Savior, the one who has been risen from the dead. And add that judgment, Romans 2.11, there is no partiality with God. It Does, doesn't matter if you are great or small. You all go before this, this God who is the judge and will be judged fairly and righteously and with justice. You know, our court system is probably the best court system in the entire world. But all you have to do is read news articles, even in a superficial way, to realize that when, when people go to court, the, the, the person who usually wins is the person who has the best what? Lawyer. I mean, let's just, let's just be honest about that. The people who have the best lawyer, who can somehow garner up enough funds to put enough doubt in 12 people, they're usually going to win. And you, we would call them the great. Those who have less, they have less choices in, in, in terms of who's going to defend them. And often, they don't get the same type of verdict. And, and, and so we need to realize that, that when this judgment comes, it doesn't matter whether you're great, no matter what kind of defense you might come up with, you're not going to get off. This is what is to come. Secondly, we want to see not only the great white throne, a judge, a changing universe, and all kinds of people, both great and small. We want to see the comprehensive summons of all who are to be judged. Look at uh, verse 13, first part of it. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. Now, I had, a, I had this question this week. Some, one of the Bible studies asked me, is it, is it legitimate for you know, Christians to uh, cremate their loved ones? Is it to somehow dishonor you know, God if, if, if there's a cremation? Now, the obvious answer to that is, well, no. I mean, just think about the ways people have died throughout history. You know, some people have, have died a quiet, peaceful death in their, in their home, in their own bed, or in, a, in some hospital or some place like that, and maybe the, the family is surrounding them. And with that, they have the options whether they want to uh, bury them in whatever form. But, but we've had so many wars. Uh, there have been so many people that have been blown beyond picking up their pieces because of stepping on a landmine or, or being where a nuclear weapon or some other type of uh, bomb exploded in, in their close proximity. There, there have been people who've lived in times of peace and they got, they got somehow trapped in a fire and their whole bodies were consumed by the heat and the flames. People have been eaten by fish, and unlike Jonah, who was spit up on the shore, they remain in the belly of the great fish, the great white shark or the whale, and they were consumed by the acids within the 
the person, or I mean the, the fish that consumed him. And, and what he's saying here is the summons go out, that it doesn't matter where they are, whether in the, the deepest sea, or they're in that place of containment called Hades for the dead. When God calls, they'll be brought before this throne. Have you ever uh, been involved uh, in trying to hide from somebody because you didn't want the, you, them to know you were there or you had done what they were wondering, who, who did it type thing? Uh, can you remember your kids sometimes? Maybe they got caught with their, uh, you know, you, you come home and who, who's been in the cookie jar? Have you ever had that happen? Um, in our home, whenever we wondered who was in the cookie jar, cookie jar, we always said, Mark, Mark, where are you? Okay. And then, you know, he could have the, the crumbs falling off his cheek and he would, or his chin, and he'd say, I didn't do it. I didn't do it, right? And if somehow they could see us or hear us coming home, they would all hide. They'd scurry, you know. Because if somehow they, if they couldn't be seen, you know, maybe they, 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 we wouldn't know they were there. And it doesn't matter if we called out their names, they wouldn't come. When God summons comprehensively all those who are going to face judgment will immediately be brought before him. In Luke 16, there's the passage which speaks about this torment that's even already going on. And, and basically, the simplest way to understand heaven and hell, and there's much more complexity we could talk about, but basically, hell is not in its full state right now, and heaven is not in its full state as well. But there are places of judgment now, and there's places of being in the presence of God now. And Luke 16 talks about that, even for the, the rich man. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, which is this kind of a synonym or illustration of, of heaven. And the rich man also died and was buried in Hades. He lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. There, there's this great gulf between those who believe and those who don't. So how should we visualize that which is to come? It's going to be a place where there's this great white throne. And out of it will be the Son of God, Jesus, sitting to make judgment. And God will picture for us again, all that which is sinful will be destroyed and remade. And everyone will come. There is no partiality with God, both the great and the small. And when he summons them, all will come. Thirdly. We need to see what and how people will be judged. Look back at other parts of verses 12 and 13. In the middle of verse 12, it says this. And books were opened before the dead, the great and the small. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Latter part of verse 13. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Yeah, we, we live in a day, in fact, every day that history has recorded the lives of people. People are just hoping that God grades on the curve, right? That somehow if we, if we have this bell curve, that if, if long as we're better than the majority of other people, then, then we get a pass. That, 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 that God's standard is simply just being better than somebody else. But we need to understand that, that God looks far beyond what we consider okay. 
that all sin will be judged. And the only hope is that you have a forgiver of your sins. What will people be judged for? Matthew 12, verses 36 and 37 says this, But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now the only words that are going to justify is you've come to that point where you've confessed Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. That's Romans chapter 10. But if you are judged and I am judged by my words, what, what is so damning about that? And the place we ought to use hell and damnation is a place like this. What's so damning about that is that our words will convict us. See, words in the Bible don't just describe the things, the sounds that come out of your mouth that can either build people up or tear them down. It reflects your heart. When you, see, when you say something hateful, when I say something hateful, it, re, it, it, it reflects a hateful heart. When, when I you know, have road rage, whether I say it or do anything, but I'm so mad at somebody who cut me off or whatever it might be, that, that reflects a murderous heart. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he described it in so many different ways. When we have lust in our heart, it shows us an adulterous heart. So we will be judged if we don't know Jesus by every word that proceeds out of our mouth. But look at Luke chapter 2, verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has been guilty of what? All. So every person that's summoned to this great white throne judgment, they say, well, just how many of the commandments have I broken? And the answer will be, you have broken them all. And then just the only source of hope, which is being the book of life, which is the source of hope for anyone. How can anyone face God? By proclaiming innocence when every word that's been given out of anger or hatred or the desire to destroy someone by the things that we say to them and every action that has been disobedient, how can anyone have any hope? To escape that kind of judgment is being in the book of life. Luke 10, 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. He's speaking to his followers that the spirits are, are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. We'll be judged by what we do and what we say, and we'll be judged by our rejection of Jesus Christ. Fourthly, See the verdict pronounced on those who are guilty. See the verdict announced, pronounced on those who are guilty. Then the death, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This place that was originally only created for the evil one, the devil, and the fallen angels, his demonic force, will be opened up not only for the Antichrist and the beasts that are already there that have been tormented day and night until this day, 
it will be flooded with people who have stubbornly rejected the message and good news of Jesus Christ. That have trampled on the blood that, that Jesus poured out for us. That have denied that which Jesus so publicly proclaimed that he was their only source of hope. He was the only Savior that would keep them from the judgment that is to come. In John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29, it says there are two resurrections. There's a resurrection to life, and there's a resurrection to death and judgment. Some of the most sobering words is found in Matthew 7, 21, and I should have put through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven and uh, will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, we did not, didn't we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and your name perform many work, miracles? Then verse 23, say, depart from me, I never knew you. In Hebrews, the Bible says, it is an overwhelming experience to fall in the hands of an angry God. So, so what kind of hope do we have? There's only the hope that's provided in Jesus Christ. Did you ever, when you were going through school, ever have to read uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards? If not, let me just give you a couple of parts. It's considered the, the most famous sermon ever preached on American soil. And this is what he says. It would be a dreadful to suffer the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God one moment. But you must suffer it to all eternity. There will be no end to the, the horrible misery. When you look forward, you shall see a long forever, a boundless duration before you, which will swallow up your thoughts and amaze your soul. And you will absolutely despair of ever being delivered. Any end, any rest at all. You will know certainly that you must wear out long ages, millions and millions of ages, in wrestling and conflicting with this almighty, merciless vengeance from a holy God. And, and, and when you have so done, when so many ages have actually been spent by you in this manner, you will know that all of this is but a point or a moment to what remains. All that we can possibly say about it gives but a very feeble, faint representation of it. It is inexpressible and inconceivable, for who knows the power of God's anger? Many times people ask me, well, do you believe there's going to be a literal fire in heaven? I mean, in hell. All I know would be whether it's a literal fire or it's simply a symbol representing the experience in hell. God picked that picture to speak of unbelievable pain to be in a place like that. Complete darkness. Whether anybody can recognize or see anybody in that place, I have no idea. But the sense of just being overwhelmed with a sense of doom. You know, weeping and gnashing of teeth, Un, unmitigated sorrow. 
Hell is a place we don't want to send anybody with our words. We, hell is a place we don't ever want ourselves to go or anyone we even know faintly to go. And there's only one hope. John 3.16 is the most familiar verse in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And the good news, after verse 16 comes verse 17. And verse 17, for God did not send his son to judge the world. That's not the purpose, but to save the world, to rescue it. And then after verse 17 comes verse, you are such a sharp group, right? I have that in your outline this morning. He who believes in him, this is Jesus, is not judged. How can I escape the judgment? This judgment can be over for you, this great white judgment. He who believes in him is not judged. But he who does not believe have been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You know, the word judgment is, you know, it's a word that's, that's used in the New Testament for a variety of experiences. You know, every, you know, every time you take a test, the teacher is making a what on you? A judgment. Do you know the material or do you not know the material, right? When you go on a test, you always kind of wonder, I wonder what kind of judgment the teacher is going to give me on this paper I sent in or this test I just took or this assignment that was given to me. Now, what God is saying here is... You don't have to worry about the judgment I'm going to give you in the future. That can be settled now. You can get a passing grade now. And it is simple. It's not easy. But it's saying I'm putting my complete trust and faith and life in Jesus' hands. And I want to follow him in a fully devoted way. John 5, 24, truly, truly. He's going to give this unbelievable promise. And he has to say truly, truly twice. He says, it's so great, it's hard to believe. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Which simply is saying this. You've got to believe that Jesus is really who he claimed to be, God and Savior and Lord. And does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. And here's the question. Have you passed out of death into life? Have you had your name written in the book of life? Have you had all the words and deeds that you have said and will say been covered by the blood of Jesus on the cross? Have you come to that point, not just mouthing a prayer, but have you come to that place in your life and said, God, save me, rescue me, forgive me. I put my trust in you. You are, you are a gracious and merciful God who does not leave me to the unimaginable challenge of living good enough, which we can never be on our own to know you, but you have provided a way if I'll simply walk in it and put my trust in you and not myself. This is the message of this book. God did not come to condemn you, but to save you, to forgive you, to rescue you. But you must place your life in his hands.
Let's pray. Father, the good news is we don't have to face a Christless eternity. The bad news is we can choose to experience a Christless eternity. Father, I pray for each one here that they might just be honest with you. We can all mouth the words. We can all look like one thing but not be what we promote ourselves to be. But Father, if, if we are honest with you, you'll be honest with us. And I pray for each of us that we might just give ourselves completely and fully and wholly to Jesus. Lord, just take who I am. Forgive me of my sins. Cause me to walk in your ways. Help me not to live for myself, but for others and for the one who came for me. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, as